As you grab a seat, we're going to uh, continue in 2 Timothy today. So we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 13. Um, but just by way of recap, last, uh, the last two weeks we have looked at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul is writing to Timothy, who was a guy who had been on Paul's missionary journeys with him. Uh, he was a, a co-worker for the sake of the gospel uh, with Paul. And Paul had sent him back to stay in Ephesus, which is a, a city where Paul had planted a church. And, and Paul had spent three years in Ephesus. He, he sends Timothy back uh, to establish a church there. Uh, and in chapter 1, one of the, I guess, the key things that we're carrying into chapter 2 is Paul is encouraging Timothy to continue to pursue Jesus, like to hold fast to Jesus, to hold fast to the gospel, even though it might lead to suffering. Even as Paul says over and over again throughout the letter, he is suffering. Paul is in prison. Uh, he is uh, a short time away from being uh, put to death by the Roman Empire. And he is writing to Timothy to encourage him to continue to hold fast to what he has heard and and to continue to pass it on to other people. Uh, and so in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, 1 through 13 we're going to kind of pick up on this same idea. And one of the main questions that we might ask or that, that Paul addresses he has just told Timothy in chapter 1, share in suffering for the gospel. And in chapter 2, what we're going to see is Paul kind of fleshing that out. What does it look like? How does somebody do that? How is Timothy supposed to take Paul's instructions and live them out? Uh, so we're going to pick up in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, if you have a copy of Scripture, or it will be on screen for you to follow along. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he will also reign, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now you remember in, in chapter 1, Paul says this, this classic uh, phrase. He says, I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I know whom I have believed in and I am convinced that he is able to guard for me what he has entrusted uh, into, unto that day. So Paul has been saying, like, he's encouraging Timothy, share in suffering, don't be ashamed of the gospel, look to my example. 
Paul says, I am not ashamed because I know who Jesus is and I am convinced that he's able to do what he says he can do. So then this carries over to the next question, though, is if, if Timothy is to share in suffering, how in the world is he supposed to do that? I'll ask the same question I asked last week. How many of you like voluntary suffering? Not so much, right? Like nobody really, like and we talked about last week, and, and I won't recap all of what we talked about last week, but last week we talked about how we, we experience pain and we experience uncomfort or discomfort. We in, in, in experience all of those things in every other pursuit of life, right? In order to achieve anything, like we go through some amount of suffering. It doesn't come easily. But when it comes to the gospel, for some reason, we kind of compartmentalize and like, I can suffer for all these other things, but, but I don't know that I really want to suffer for Jesus. Right? I'll suffer for my work. I'll suffer for my family. I'll suffer for my house. I'll suffer for the car that I want. I'll suffer for this. I'll suffer for that. I'll suffer for all sorts of things. But then it's like, well, Jesus is kind of an optional suffering. Like, that's like an additional opt-in at the end if I decided I want to do that. But Paul is encouraging Timothy, share in suffering. And then the question like, that I would hope Timothy asks right off of that is like, how in the world do you do that? How do you, how do you voluntarily walk into suffering? And what mindset do you have to have? And, and, and how in the world do you walk into suffering for the sake of Jesus? And the overarching theme of chapter 2 is found in verse 1. He says, you then, my child, and, and remember, Timothy's not his actual child. He's a child in the faith. But he says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It is impossible for Timothy, or for you, or for me, or for any other person, to suffer for the sake of Jesus, or to walk in obedience to Jesus, if Jesus doesn't give grace. Like, if the grace of God isn't what carries us, it's not what holds us, it's not what spurs us on, it's not what gives us the strength, you and I, by ourselves, in our own abilities, we're just not that strong. Even the strongest of us. Like, if we line everybody up and like, you're strong, you're kind of strong, sorry kids, you're not strong yet, right? Like, and we just lined it up by ability, and we said, who is able to endure the things that God is calling you to on your own ability? Well, no one can stand. So, the, the overarching thing is, the grace that is in Christ Jesus supersedes everything else that we talk about this morning. And so we go, okay, well, what, do, what is the grace that is in Christ Jesus? That's probably an important starting place. If we're going to say, the grace that is in Christ Jesus is essential for your life in Christ, or in, in your ability to follow what God has called you to be and to do as an image bearer that He has created— what does it mean to be strengthened or to even experience the grace that is in Christ Jesus? Because this is where it all hinges, right? If, if, if everything hinges on grace, we, need to ask, well, we come back to that idea, what is grace? We talked about it in, in chapter 1, verses one uh, verse 2, where it says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the unmerited or undeserved gift of God. It's undeserved or it's unmerited. In other words, you can't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to deserve it. 
So if you're going to be strengthened by the, the grace that is in Christ Jesus, the first key idea there is this is a free gift that Jesus gives to people. It's not something that we inherently bring into the equation with us. It's something that God alone does. And then the next question we might would ask is, why do we need it? Like, why do I need the free gift that is in Christ Jesus? Is it the same as the free car warranty that people call me about constantly? Like, I don't really need it. Why are you calling me about it? Is it free ice in my water? Like, I could do without it. It's nice to have, but it's not essential. Like, why is this free, unmerited, unearned gift of God necessary for you or for me or for any other person in the world? This is the heart of what Paul is is calling Timothy to do. And he says, share in the gospel. The gospel is this picture of the unmerited good gift of God. Because if we break down what is the gospel, what is grace? Right? You and I and every other person on this planet, doesn't matter where you live, where you're born, where you grew up, each and every person on this planet, including you, including me, were created by the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sufficient God of the universe in his image so that we would know him and walk with him. Like, that's the whole, like, if you've ever wondered, how many of you ever wondered, like, what is my purpose in life? Right? Like, it's, it's the search of every person on the planet. Like, what am I here for? You are here to know God and to walk with him. And that plays out in all of the different ways that we work and all the different kind of ways that we do things. Ultimately, you exist, you are on planet Earth to know God and to walk with Him. It's the greatest and highest purpose that you have been made for. But the problem is, is that you and I were created for this lofty purpose of knowing God and walking with Him in a right relationship. But God, the eternal God of the universe, is holy, which means He is without blemish, without any junk right he doesn't make mistakes he doesn't he doesn't have wrong thoughts he doesn't do wrong things and very quickly if i phrase it that way you realize you and i have wrong thoughts we do wrong things we have wrong emotions towards people places or things other nouns we don't do what we ought to do we don't do that which we were created for. In fact, instead of uh, walking in light of who God is and, and walking with him and for him, we go, I think my life is better spent lived on me. And so our lives, and, and, and the simple way of saying this is we sin against a holy God. In other words, we don't do what is right towards a God who expects and demands and is worthy of, worthy would be the best word, he is worthy of perfection. And again, really quickly, we go, well, that's not me. I'm not perfect. I'm not good enough. Like, and, and maybe the very next follow-up question is, who could possibly live up to that? And this is the bad news. No one. Like, out of seven billion people on the planet, how many of them are perfect? In thought, in action, in purpose, in motivation, how many of them are perfect? Well, none of them are. All of us have sinned and fall short of God's holiness and his glory. And this is where that idea of unmerited grace, unmerited or undeserved gift comes in. 
Because God, who is holy and set apart in every way, who does, like, he doesn't need anything from us, yet because he loves the people who he created in his image, he sent his eternal son Jesus to take on flesh and live among us. And out of all the people in all of human history who have not been perfect, Jesus alone was perfect, without sin in every way. And it wasn't enough just that Jesus was like, wow, he, we have an example now of what it looks like to be perfect. But this perfect Son of God went to the cross and died, taking your guilt and my guilt on himself. Guilt that he didn't deserve, that he hadn't earned. Punishment that he didn't deserve. He didn't merit. Didn't store it up for himself. And yet, freely took it on himself so that you and I might be made right with God. It's the, like, it's the most unfair thing in the world for Jesus. And at the same time, it's the most unfair thing in the world for you and for me. That although we are not perfect and, and we are willfully not perfect. Like it's not like we just sin on accident. Like we choose it over the God who created us. And yet the unmerited or unearned gift of God that he gives that we couldn't ever pay for, we couldn't ever stock up enough to earn it, he gives freely in Jesus eternal life and a new life even on this side of heaven. So when he says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, he's talking about the, the grace that is sufficient for salvation. It's, it's the, the, the grace that brings us into a right relationship with Jesus, but it also helps us to continue to walk in a right relationship with him after we place faith in him. So one of the most important questions that we would ask ourselves before we go any farther is have I experienced the free gift of God in Christ Jesus? Have I experienced the free grace of God that is in Christ Jesus? Or am I unintentionally or intentionally living my life as if I have to be good enough to pay off God who is like an eternal bookie who is just keeping tabs of how far ahead or below the line I am? Have I experienced the grace that wipes away all debt of sin, shame, and guilt and sets me right with the God who created me? Or am I spinning in my own efforts trying to do it on my own? Because if we're trying to do it on our own, everything else that comes after this will ultimately, if you try to apply the rest of what we're going to talk about in 2 Timothy chapter 2 from a place of trying to earn it for yourself, what you will find this week or shortly thereafter, if, if you take this seriously and you try to do this in your own strength, you will be incredibly frustrated because you cannot do it. Okay, so that's a really important. Like all of this hinges on a response to the free gift of grace, right? You need to be strengthened in it, to walk in it. But if we get this wrong on the front end, and we begin to think that grace is something that we have to earn or that we have to pay for or that we have to be good enough to, to like unlock, then the Christian life is, is not a reality for us. In fact, it's just, it's just more heaping on shame and guilt because we're not good enough. But if it's a response of grace, then we're walking in freedom to respond to the God who created us. And the call then is a call to walk with him in faithfulness. It is not a call to perfection. And we're going to talk about that as we flesh this out. We're on a good basis? We're all on the same page? All right. 
So then he says, because of the grace that is in Christ Jesus, one of the things that flows out of this is a commitment to make this same grace known to other people. In verse 2 he says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these words to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, if we just break that down really quickly, how many generations are represented in that statement? What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. How many generations is that? It's four. So Paul says, what you've heard from me, right? So there's Timothy. Timothy heard from Paul. Paul's right before him, right? So there's Paul, there's Timothy. Entrust these to faithful people who will do what? Teach others to do the same thing. And, and guess what those faithful people ought to do also? Teach other people to do. And what do those people do? Teach other people to do. Like The reason why you and I are sitting here in worship this morning is because the early church took this call seriously. Like There is a string of faithful people who have been teaching others to obey also. It's, it's not like all of a sudden we just like, hey, we need a new church, and how, what do we teach? I don't know, there's this thing in the New Testament, I guess we'll do that. It's like, there's, there's a, 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 a strain of faithfulness, generation after generation after generation, many of whom you and I have no idea who they are. And you think about this in terms of today's Father's Day, right? And I think I've asked this question before, but how many of you know who, like, you know at least your, your grandfather's name? If you didn't know your grandfather, you know your grandfather. Everybody know who your grandfather is at least by name. Every, like we keep going, walking this back. Does everybody know your great grandfather by name or where is that? No, see, this is where we're already like we're, we we go back four generations. We're already like going. Uh, I don't really know. Even for those of you like maybe you're really good on great grandparents. How many of you know about your great great grandparents? You know where they lived. You know their names. You know who they were. How many of you can go back to like great 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 grandparents and like that takes you back like Jim you're 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 weird no I'm just kidding you're not weird that's awesome that you can do that right like most of us we we lose track and we go I don't I don't know you should probably send me one of those cheek swabs so I can send it off so you can tell me who I am and where I came from I don't know because right? I can only go back a hundred like maybe seventy five years and I like those people could have just like dropped off the moon for all I know because I don't know where they came from in much the same way most of us. We might would be able to, um, among us, we might be able to go back and, and go, somebody in this church this morning knows people who helped start Libby Baptist Church in 1963. But then if we went back even further, like, where did they come from? Like, where were they at before they started this church? And, and like, even within just one local church, we go, well, after about 70 years, I don't I don't really know. We're just here. Fancy that, right? But here's the beauty of this, like that, that God's faithfulness overrides whether or not your name is remembered four generations from now. And, and, and what you do committing the gospel to the next generation, even though they may not remember you three generations from now, guess what they will remember? The sound pattern of teaching that so-and-so heard from them who passed on to them, who then passed on to them. And there's, there's, a, there, there's, a, there's a little bit of a difficulty in this, if we're being really honest, because we live in a time where you can be famous for just random stuff. Like the internet, make you can be famous for stupid stuff. 
But it hurts our ego a little bit, doesn't it? That, that knowing, like if we just stop and think about it, that in four generations, we will be forgotten for the most part. Does that hurt anybody's ego? Or is it just me? Like, I want to do something that lasts. I want to do something that matters beyond myself. I don't want you to forget who I am. Right? There's a little bit of that angst in us. And yet here's the incredible thing that, that Paul is laying out here is that, that what you do in terms of the gospel, and, and not just in your life, but in passing it on to others, it has an impact beyond what you could possibly imagine. It's a, in other words, it's, it's something worth pouring your life into. For Timothy, it's worth pouring your life into, even if it invites the same kind of suffering that Paul is experiencing. Paul says, I'm, in, I'm suffering in, in chains as a criminal, he says later in the chapter. He says, yet join in suffering with me. You know, why? Because Jesus is worth it. And what he has done is worth it. Not the suffering, like the suffering by itself is not worth it. The act of going to jail for the gospel by itself isn't worth it. But the God who brings this good news to us is infinitely worth it. And then the other good news in this is that as Paul is teaching Timothy this, we might would think, well, wow, Timothy's by himself as a faithful person. That's really hopeless for Timothy. It's kind of like Elijah when he goes out in the cave and he's like, God, they're trying to kill me. I'm the only prophet left. I'm the only one who seeks you. And God's like, hey, there's like 7,000 of you. You're not the only one. And then Paul gives, as we keep tracking in the chapter, he gives three examples or three illustrations to kind of drive home this idea of what does it look like to share in suffering? What does it look like to be committed to the gospel? What does it mean to be committed to Jesus in our lives? So three real-life kind of examples that would have been commonly realized and understood in Timothy's day. The first one, if you want to say this, or, or three, three aspects even of what it looks like to be gospel-centered in our life. The first one, and again, if we separate this from grace, what you will find is that you are putting yourself on a performance treadmill that you can't keep up on. Okay, It's flowing out of grace. It's not earning grace. So because of grace, he says, stay focused. Notice this, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So he uses the example of a soldier. He says, first of all, share in suffering as a good soldier, but then stay focused like a good soldier. Don't get entangled in other affairs. Now, within the Roman Empire, this would have been a readily recognized symbol or illustration of of a life lived, if you want to say that. Everywhere in Rome, outside of Italy, was not traditionally Rome. It was conquered territory. And what normally happens in conquered territories? Who shows up? Soldiers, right? Who live there, they maintain order, they, they bring peace, they occupy land, they stay there, they accomplish the purpose of the emperor or whoever else. And so the Roman soldier would have been a, a really good image for Timothy and anybody else in the first century Roman Empire. The Roman troops, just to, to, to give you an idea of, of what this looked like, they served, they're, they're, they were a little bit more than our four-year terms that we have in the modern military. They were 16 to 25-year terms. In that 16 to 25 years, when they started, all of the soldiers came out of Italy because they were all Roman citizens. 
So when they first started expanding and pushing into these other areas, they weren't from the places where they were occupying. And because they weren't from the places that they were occupying, one of the terms of their service is that they would not get married and start families. So 16 to 25 years was sole focus of service to the Roman Empire. Because they didn't want guys who were leaving families. Why? They get distracted. They, they wanted them out on the, the, the peripheries of the Roman Empire, completely unentangled and disengaged from anything that might pull their hearts back towards home base. Now, what Paul is not saying is he doesn't say, you should abandon your family in pursuit of Jesus. He's not saying that. Okay? Don't hear me say that. What he is saying is, look at the, the commitment of these guys and the focus that they have where they are not entangled in regular, everyday pursuits. If you can imagine, uh, even in, in modern military terms. If you were getting ready to deploy troops and somebody was to say, wait, I still got 10 items to sell on eBay. I can't go yet. Or wait, I have 10 things to do before I go. He says, they don't get entangled in those things. They are ready to go. And why are they ready to go? Because their aim is not just for themselves. It's to please the one who enlisted them. So then the question of who if, if Paul is using the example of a soldier who is enlisted, who is the one who enlists God's people to follow and obey him in a right relationship in the gospel? It's Jesus. The one who enlisted you is not your pastor. The one who enlisted you is not the person that shared the gospel with you even. It's not the person that led you to faith in the gospel. The person who enlisted you is not even yourself. And you say, well, I signed up for this. But the one whose life... So, so the better way to ask this question is, whose pleasure am I living for? Like, in the way that I live my life, who am I trying to please with my life? Now, most of us, if we were probably honest at this point, we'd say, well, I'm really trying to, I'm trying to please myself. I am trying to milk this life in the 80 years or 70 years or however many years that God gives me. I'm trying to milk it for all that I can get out of it. And yet Paul says, you're not living for your own pleasure. Your aim is to please the one who enlisted you. And that doesn't mean that life in Christ is, is without good things. It's, it, that it's without pleasure. That it's without Good experiences. But it is to say, where is our focus? Is our focus in our lives all about us and what we can get? Or is it all about what is God doing in and through us? So if we're to share in suffering, if, if it's, think about it this way. If Timothy is, is, is to share in suffering, or that's what Paul calls him to do, if Timothy is living for his own comfort and his own pleasure, that is a ridiculous thing to tell him. I'm perfectly happy not suffering. I'm good. Thank you. But if Timothy's purpose in life is living in light of the one who called him to himself, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to say, share in the suffering for the gospel. Because Jesus called you to this. Notice the difference in that. It's subtle. But how much of our lives, just diagnostic question to take this week, how much of my life is spent with very little thought to anybody other than what I want out of this experience? The focus, the staying focused, we can be focused, though, because of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
What has he done for me that I did not deserve? And what does that grace compel me to do as a response? The second example that he gives, or the second, the second way to, to share in suffering or to, to be strengthened in grace, he says, is to pursue holiness is the way we're going to word this. So in, in verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Again, using a popular thing that anybody in the time would recognize, he uses the example of an athlete in competition. In Roman life, they had like 159 holidays a year, which is like we're creeping up to that. We're getting close. 159 holidays on the calendar, 93 of them having public games attached to them. Like, that's a lot of games. That's a lot of, uh, of time around athletes. But um, once upon a time, just to, to give you an idea, this, this way he says that using the example of the athlete, is to compete according to the rules, and he doesn't. He can't win if he doesn't compete against uh, according to the rules. Uh, once upon a time, about I don't know, twelve ish years ago, um, I I I say I'm moonlit. I had a side hustle of testing uh, drug testing athletes, like Olympic level athletes, going and doing administering their drug test, which sounds really cool. It's watching people pee in a cup. Okay, and, and it's like, you're with them. You can go say, hey, we knock on the door and say, hey, you've been, here's your, your drug test thing. We're with you until you decide to pee in the cup. And then we have to watch you pee in the cup to make sure you're uh, p- uh, competing according to the rules. Now, it doesn't take us very much. If you've ever watched the Olympics, have you ever seen somebody that says, oh, they missed the last Olympics because they were suspended for doping? You've ever seen that? What is that telling you? They couldn't be crowned because they didn't compete according to the rules. Or even more ridiculous, if you went to like a, a middle school or elementary school cross-country race and all the kids started running and ran whichever kind of race they wanted to race, set their own course, set their own distance, you have a picture of the like kids just like limbs flailing and some just like they take 10 steps and they stop like, I win because I'm done. If like it, There's a set idea of what the race is. Which is why Paul says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. And in the previous chapter, he says, stick to the pattern of sound teaching. Like there's, there's a pattern of holiness for the believer. There's, there's an understanding of what the life in Christ looks like. It's not just for us to decide for ourselves, this is, this is what holiness looks like. Well, I think holiness today looks like this because I, I would rather do these things. No, he says, you have to race according to the rules. You compete according to the rules. And who sets the rules? Again, not you and me. As much as we might like to bend the rules or bend the pursuit of holiness to say, well, this is holiness. This is what a race looks like. He says, stick to the pattern. Stick to the prototype. Stick to the thing that I have laid out before you. Follow the pattern of, of sound words. Now again, if we were to pursue holiness apart from grace, how frustrating would that be? Because you could never do it. You could never be good enough. That's why grace is grace. It's why Jesus has come. So we follow the pattern of holiness because of grace, not to earn grace. And then finally, the last example he gives is to labor diligently like a hardworking farmer. In verse 6, he says, the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. The idea of hardworking is laboring to weariness. Laboring to, like, exhaustion. 
Not necessarily, and when we talk about this in terms of, of your life in Christ, we're not talking about an unhealthy life of burnout, but we are talking about a life that is poured into the pursuit of Jesus. I've been around enough agricultural people to know that I'm really glad I'm not one, mostly because of their incredibly hardworking pursuit of crops every year. And that's in the age of, like, heavy machinery. Can you imagine first century farming in order to obtain a harvest at the end of that? It doesn't come by accident. There is diligent work that is poured into it. In the same way, Paul is calling Timothy to labor intentionally in the gospel. And I would dare say, as, as people in northwest Montana, we don't necessarily shy away from the idea of hard work, but the question is, like, who are we working hard for? And it kind of goes back to that same question of, whose pleasure am I living for? Whose field am I laboring in to bring a harvest? And again, working hard because we've experienced grace, not to try to earn grace. And Paul encourages Timothy, he says, Think over what I say, the Lord will give you understanding in everything, which kind of echoes James chapter 1, verse 7. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach, right? So God is this giver of not only of grace, but also of wisdom in how to apply what Paul is telling Timothy. And then he immediately roots it back into the gospel hope. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Like, If you want to know what it looks like to serve as a good soldier, if you want to know what it looks like to compete as an athlete who is competing in a way that is worthy of the prize, if you want to know what it looks like to labor as the hardworking farmer, the best place to start is going back where? What is the right response to the God who has given everything to me? That all that I have, if I recognize that all that I have, all that I am is the free gift and, and the unmerited favor of God towards me, it changes how I respond to those things. And then Paul says again, this gospel, the good news, Jesus risen from the dead for our sin, this is why I am suffering. Bound with chains as a criminal. But that follows with this incredible promise at the end of verse 9. Paul, the greatest missionary probably in all of history, says, I am suffering for the gospel. I'm chained like a criminal. I can't go where I want. But then he says, but God's word isn't chained. Why can Jesus, have you ever asked this question, why has Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 And verse 18, when he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they start to give him examples of what people say. Some people say that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some people say Elijah. But he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and he affirms that his answer is the right one. But then in verse 18, he says something profound. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, on this confession, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, who, te- who comes, takes on flesh, and dies for the sins of the world. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How can Jesus say that with confidence? 
I'm going to build a church. I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell, hell cannot prevail against it. How can, like, if Jesus were to look forward 2,000 years in the future and know what is happening, how could he possibly say that the truth of the gospel will remain and nothing will overtake it? Unless his word is not chained. Think about all of the ways in all of the world throughout human history and the ways that people have tried to chain God's word by silencing his people, starting with Paul and Peter and the early uh, disciples. In every generation, there are places, even now, where the gospel is trying to be silenced by, or people are trying to silence the gospel by silencing God's people, and yet somehow, God's word continues to go forth in those places. And this is a really good, just really good news for you and for me. The truth of who God is and what he is doing and the proclamation of that, while it depends on mouthpieces, God's word will continue to do its work because it is God's word, not because of how good or bad you and I are. We are simply called, and we'll we'll come full circle to this at the end of our verses this morning, we are called to a life of faithfulness. And yet, God's ability to work in and through our faithfulness are not limited to our faithfulness, which is an incredible. Like God is, God, well, one of the other ways I can say this is God is really big, y'all. He is really big, and he is really powerful, and he can accomplish and will accomplish his purposes because he is in control. But he calls us to live in light of this. And Paul says, if we come back into to 2 Timothy the word of God is not bound. And then he immediately says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, and the sake of those who God will call to himself through the proclamation of the gospel, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In other words, Paul says, This is worthy of me pouring myself out. I, I'll endure anything and everything because God's word isn't bound and God will accomplish his purposes. Therefore, Timothy, share in this. You can be confident, Timothy, that your life poured out for him will not be poured out in vain either. And he could say that to every generation of God's people in every place, in every time. Your life spent for Jesus will not be in vain. Because God's word isn't bound. He isn't restrained by the efforts of people. In fact, he will continue to work and continue to bring people to himself. And then we close with another trustworthy saying. If you remember in 1 Timothy, there was a handful of these. Uh, the saying is trustworthy that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Right? That Paul lays out these trustworthy sayings that kind of serve as a foundation or, a, again, a gospel truth that Timothy can fall back on, that you and I can fall back on. And it's almost like it's an early song of the church. If we have done, and just listen to the gospel truths that it contains. If we have died with Jesus, we will also live with Jesus. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm bound as a criminal. But I'll endure everything because I've died with him and I know I will live with him. In other words, Paul is saying, There's nothing anybody can do to me. My future is secure in Jesus' hands. He says, if we endure, 
we will also reign with him. This promise that we will be seated with Jesus. That language, if we endure, is all throughout the book of Revelation as a church that is undergoing extreme persecution to the one who overcomes, to the one who endures, to the one who endures to the end. That, that language over and over and over again. Even as Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they might know or obtain the salvation, the salvation that's in Christ Jesus. And these last two lines, we want to spend just a little bit of time on them because they might be confusing when we first read them. It says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, that's, we just had two really positive statements, right? If, if we've died with him, we'll be raised with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And then a, an extremely negative phrase, if we deny him, he will also deny us. That's scary. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus says the same thing. Uh, in, in, in to his disciples, he's talking to them about a, a coming time of, of persecution, but he's encouraging them not to be afraid, but to, to trust the one who has sent them. But then he finishes, he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You know, how does that jive with this next phrase? If we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So it just said, if we deny him, he'll deny us. But then it says he cannot deny himself. What, what do you do with that? Do those two things, are, are they in competition or do they work together? We take these as two different snapshots in time or two different attitudes altogether. Denial being the place of, of, of final posture of refusal. Or in other words, a, a refusal outrightly. Not just, and not just at one point, but a continued refusal of Jesus. He says, then he'll also refuse us. But then it says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. And if you think of this as the temporary wavering that occurs in a pursuit of Jesus. Not an outright denial, but a pursuit of Jesus in faithfulness, and yet a recognition that we are not perfect in our faithfulness. And says, he remains faithful. Now again, if we were reading this from a standpoint of how do I maintain the gift of God that I somehow worked hard enough to receive already, the pressure there is really high that I be faithful. Right, because at any point, if I become, uh, if I drop to faithless, or possibly even drop to denying Him, I might lose what I have been freely given. But what we see instead is, in the midst of our weakness, being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, when we are weak, He is strong. When we are wavering, He is constant. What I see in that is an incredible picture of hope for you and for me. How often do you feel like you have it all together in your walk with Jesus? Like it's all, like you have it all nailed down, it's all good. How often do you feel like you are working, maybe not be the best word, laboring to stay focused, to pursue holiness, to work hard for him, and yet you still go, my mind's, I'm like a rabbit over here now. Squirrel over here now. Like, and like Paul says in Romans, 
is despite all of the things that I want to do, I do the opposite. And the, and the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing those things. How often do you find that being kind of like, the, the, that's, hey, he, Paul's reading my mail. This is who I am. And there's this incredible picture of God's faithfulness to his own who, who have received the gift of grace that he gives. Saying that when we waffle, he doesn't waffle. I want to look really quickly. It's not on, on screen for you. In James chapter 4. It's just a, there's a verse that's been coming back to my mind the last couple of days as I've been preparing for this morning. In James chapter 4, James is writing a letter to, to a group of believers that are scattered all over the place. And he talks about this, this, this tension between the, the, the right desires that God gives and yet our own desires that come from our flesh and, and this wrestling thing that happens within us. And he uses, on the front end, he, he, talks, he uses some, some harsher words in James chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Again, scary language. He says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But then this next phrase he says, but he gives more grace. One of the things that I think that comes to bear in this that is true in our hearts, you can tell me afterwards if I've misread it or misread our situation as people, is that it is tempting for us to view grace as a one-time gift that was sufficient for salvation, but then we're now walking we're like, we're walking in response to it, but the grace, like it, it, it filled up the cup and then it turned off. And the picture here is, but he continues to give more grace. In the midst of James giving a harsh word, he says, like, don't you know this is what it brings, but he gives more grace. Like, when your thoughts aren't what they should be, he gives more grace. When your actions aren't what they should be, but he gives more grace. When your motivations are wrong, but to his own, guess what he does? He gives more grace. Your life and my life are completely, if we are in Christ, they are completely focused on, centered around, revolving around the idea that God gives grace through Jesus and he keeps on giving grace. He remains faithful even despite all of our failings. You might, you might have come into church this morning going, holy crud, I am the worst Christian in the whole world. And what is the response? Respond to grace. Return right back to him because guess what? He gives more grace. Rather than running away from him, run towards him because what? He gives more grace. He remains faithful. Even when when we are doing all of our little squirrel chasing, he remains faithful. He is able to hold you. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I know whom I believed and I know and I'm convinced that he is able to do what I can't do. He can hold me until that day. Paul, In other words, Paul can say, I know myself. I can't hold myself until that day. But I'm convinced that he can. 
And maybe you need to hear that this morning. Like, you cannot be good enough. That's the horrible news. You're not good enough. You're going to fail. You're going to screw up. Your sin has separated you from a holy God. But that same holy God has poured out grace abundantly in Jesus for people who don't deserve it. So this morning, instead of trying to conjure up enough goodness in you to be able to say, I think I finally merited God's grace, let go of it and say, I'm not good enough, and yet he is full of grace. And then live your life in response to that grace. It will change you. Not because you're trying to have it change you, but because he gives more grace. And he will remain faithful, and he pushes you towards his purpose. At the same time that Paul encourages Timothy, and he encourages us, hit the sled, work hard, stay focused, be diligent, follow the rules, because he gives grace. In other words, Timothy, you can do this. You can share in suffering. You can do all these things as a good soldier, as a hardworking farmer, as an athlete who competes according to the the things, not because, Timothy, you are awesome, but because the God who called you is faithful. And he will make it possible for you to walk with him and to do the things he's called you to do. So may the, the, the ripple effect of our lives to the glory of God, may it be God working through us and not us trying to achieve our results on our own. Because he alone can do the things he's calling us to do. But he's giving us all the grace that we need to do it.